0: And then my fin caught something, and as I came to the surface, I heard a roar from the crowd who were on the bank. Welcome to My Way, a podcast
1: that shares the stories of people who are doing life their way. Listen along as we explore what works, what doesn't, and the experience that happens no matter which path we choose. I'm your host, Sunny Collins. Thanks for listening. Sunny here. Welcome to episode 22 of My Way. This is the second half of my conversation with Dr. Sandy aka, a.k.a. the Bat Lady. If you haven't listened to the first part of my conversation with her, go back to episode 21 and have a listen to that first. Otherwise, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sandy. So talk about your relationship
0: with bats. It began... When I was at university, in the University of Reading, I was doing a zoology degree, my first degree. And in those days, you could select particular areas that you wanted to specialise in. And I selected mammalogy. And I selected several orders of mammals, of which one of them was Chiroptera bats, because there was so little research had been done By the time we got to 1969, not a hell of a lot was known about bats, and certainly not about UK bats. We knew that they echolocated, we knew that they were largely nocturnal, and we knew that most of the UK, all the UK species fed on insects, but beyond that, there was not a heck of a lot known. There had been some papers written on African fruit bats in the 1960s, but largely unknown So, I was interested and did quite a lot of of research within my undergraduate days for bats. When I had the option of going back to do research in South Africa, I had at the back of my mind that it would be nice to do something on South African bats. The professor at that time, who was not John Hanks in the early days, simply said to me, Why don't you spend some time finding out? what you might like to do a doctorate on. And he gave me lots of different pieces of equipment, of which some were traps, live traps. And I also had some bat mist nets to catch bats. And one of the early catching operations I ever did was a mist net across a river. And I caught a Walberg's epauletted fruit bat, Mm. which is a bat with a small dog-like head that weighs about 100 to 120 grams and has a forearm of about 90 millimetres. So not huge, but a very beautiful creature with white powder puffs on the shoulders of the males, which they are able to evert and puff out when they're calling Hmm. for their females. I subsequently found that there had been practically no research done on this species in this country. And that became the basis of my work. So my doctorate was on Wahlberg's upletted fruit bat, growth, reproduction and age determination. And from there, things further developed. When I got back to the UK, I became involved with bats over there because we had just had some legislation passed, 1981, which protected bats and particularly their roosts, even when they're not present. Uh, And in order for the government to police that, they had to have people who were bat wardens Mm -hmm. who could visit householders and talk to them about their bats and educate them. So I became one of the early bat wardens with a permit Mm -hmm. to disturb bats legally. And I suppose everything developed from there. And what do you think it is about bats that draws you to them? being nocturnal they present challenges to research them. Observation is difficult and it is those challenges I think finding out about their lives which draws me to the subject. We know so little about them even to this day we're, knowing more, we're getting to know more and more but we still know very little mm-hmm. and we're finding out huge amounts of material with the new technology that we have available to us today. Talk a little
1: bit about other types of work that you've done?
0: When I arrived in South Africa, it was 1974. In my perception, Natal was a very different province to the rest of South Africa. I was by then too old to be conscripted into any kind of army or military, but I wanted to do something for the country that I had come to live in. And I, had, I was also very keen to learn to become a diver. At the university, the captain of the reservist diving unit worked in the same department as me and he said I will teach you to be a diver on the condition that you will agree providing you are good enough to join our volunteer police reservist team which will be your, the first female police diver for what was then Natal and so I said okay and I was trained as a diver by him And I did, in fact, join the team. And our main job was to retrieve the bodies of young people who had drowned. I never retrieved a white body. They Mm. were all either Zulu or Indian. And I was instantly pleased by the compassion, because the saps at that point had a terrible reputation, as you probably know, in the area around Pretoria and Joburg. But our saps were a very different situation, certainly those that were responsible for our reservist team. So if somebody had lost a child, drowned, they would require us to go in as soon as possible to retrieve that body. And I can remember a young Zulu woman losing a baby and us um, losing the child in a a swollen river. And even though it was, I would say, quite a lot of peril to ourselves, We did our utmost to retrieve, to find that child and retrieve that child. Yeah. We failed on that occasion. So this this is quite a different picture to the picture that many outsiders, certainly outside South Africa, will perceive of the police at that time. I can remember the very, very first time I was ever called out, the very first body I had to retrieve. It was a pair of brothers, Hmm. Zulu brothers, youngsters, and they tried to cross a swollen river inland from Durban, and they both drowned. The one body was retrieved close to the, uh, the riverbank. The other one was not retrieved, and we were asked to go in to that community. And I must admit, with fear and trepidation, you go in with an, arm- an armoured vehicle yeah. um, because there had been a lot of unrest in that area and we were instantly surrounded by crowds of people who were not in any way aggressive towards us. Mm. We swam for some time on the surface. We dived underneath. We couldn't find anybody at all. And then my fin caught something, and as I came to the surface, I heard a roar from the crowd who were on the bank. I had dislodged the little boy, and the top of his head had just surfaced which was the roar so I was then able to retrieve him and bring him him to the side, to the bank and all of these people rushed around our vehicle and they climbed in and they laid reed mats on top of our equipment Mm. so that we could and they helped us to lay the boy on the reed mat Mm. and then everybody, everybody wanted to shake our hands this would have been 1980, 79, 80. So it was a very moving experience. Mm-hmm. And they were just so thrilled that they had the boy to be able to bury him. And as the only woman, how were you treated by the rest of the team? I was one of the lads. Because if you have to dive and you've got a buddy, then that has to be the case. You mm-hmm. can't be treated differently. I've done a a lot of different jobs because you will appreciate that in the early days of returning to the UK in the 80s, I gave away my expertise. Mm. Nobody would have paid me for my expertise in bat conservation, bat research and environmental impact assessment at that stage. Legislation changed and then it became something that my services were needed and I was paid for them. But there was a time when that wasn't the case. When I first returned to the UK... I ran a boarding cattery. There was a time that I worked as an education officer for a farming museum. And as part and parcel of that job, I had to manage um, a flock of sheep. (laughs) So I have lambed and I have sheared and I have dagged and I have injected. There was a time when I sold educational books for a company. So I would travel around three counties with loads of books in the boot of my car, (laughs) showing them to schools. I did whatever I needed to do. In the days that I lived in Natal for the 10 years and I worked on and off for the Natal Parks Board, some of my work was on horseback. So it involved um, game counts, it involved checking of fencing. And on one occasion, it involved game capture. So an animal would be darted. I would follow on horseback with a radio. And then radio, when the, when the animal, it was a kudu in this case, um, dropped. So the riding in those days was part and parcel of work. I did for a short time, you ask about the jobs I did, I did for a short time run a, a, um, a riding school in Natal, which we taught youngsters to ride. Did you ever at any point
1: in your work experience think, I'm getting off course or I'm sort of
0: like the Jane of all trades, master of none? No, because at that time I did whatever it was I needed to do for the the money I was earning or for whatever. But it it took a lot of years before I began to develop the business I have now. Mm. And the business I have now as a trainer of commercial consultants in environmental impact assessment but particularly in association with how to survey for bats Mm -hmm. that came about because the legislation in the UK changed and suddenly developers had to have assessments done of the buildings they were going to modify or demolish to see if there were European protected species notably bats present And if there were, what the impact would be and what mitigation would need to be in place. Mm. And that only developed in the last 20 years. So I began to do that kind of work Mm -hmm. and get paid for it a little over 20 years ago, probably 24, 25 years ago. But to that point, even though I had that knowledge, it wasn't knowledge that I could use as a business
1: what is something about you that would surprise people?
0: My second husband is, absolutely adores dancing. I met him on an ice rink. <laughs> as one does. <laughs> and this leads into the dance side of things because he went through all his exams as a, an ice dancer and then took on a job as a steward on an ice rink. So he had to be on the ice rink for several hours at a time, managing children, in some case giving them, not teaching them to skate as such, because he wasn't a, a professional teacher, but certainly assisting them in their early days of skating. So if you like, he was he was a professional ice skater. And he was also responsible for putting the music on at the rink and doing getting people to come together as pairs to do ice dancing. When he and I got together, I wouldn't say that I was um, a passionate dancer, Mm -hmm. but it became quickly apparent to me that he enjoyed dancing Mm -hmm. and that it wouldn't be a bad idea if I didn't um, partner him. (laughs) So from there onwards we have done a lot of dancing together and we particularly enjoy a form of dancing which is called C'est le which in French means this is rock and it's shortened to Siroc or Chiroc, which is a kind of um, modern jive. As a female, it presents its own challenges. There isn't a preordained pattern, so you don't learn steps. As the woman, you are entirely led by the man, so I have to interpret his hand pressure as to what it is he is requiring for me to do, and that in itself is, is an interesting challenge. We do quite advanced dance, which does involve me often being completely lifted off the floor or dropped to the ground in movements within the dance. So that is probably something that people might find surprising.
1: I think something else that people would be surprised by, because I was certainly surprised by it, is um, your participation last year in
0: uh, the Tough Tough Mudder.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Because I haven't done that and I won't. Maybe um, <laughs> I can ask
0: the question why. <laughs>
1: I you know what? I've done a co- a couple of I would call them soft obstacle course races and I just find them I find them irritating because I need to get into a rhythm as an athlete and it's it's not a rhythm
0: at all. Tough Mudder came about because my son's girlfriend wanted to do Tough Mudder. And she had asked if her mother would join her, and her mother said no. (laughs) She asked me, and I said okay. And considering there was something like 40-odd years between us, it was interesting. She herself is quite a nice-looking young lady, and I shall remember in the course of Tough Mudder a particular event in what is known as the Hero Carry, now, I decided, for better or worse, that I wasn't prepared to lift Kath onto my back and carry her. As we got to the point, which is the hero, carry, and I said, I don't think I can do this, Kath, a group of young men began to fight and say, we'll carry her, we'll carry <laughs> <laughs> And then when they had finished the carry of Kath, she then carried me. It's a competition in that you are... All supporting and helping each other. Uh-huh. So on the way, you find telegraph poles, which have to be lifted, carried, posted through holes, okay. pushed over things. And you can't, two of you, can't possibly. You all help each other. Yeah. People don't go into it as a team. Some go into it as a team, but mm-hmm. many go into it as, as individuals. And if you go into it as an individual, the whole point of it is that others will assist you because you can't do it by yourself
1: Mm. I like that
0: I got to a huge climb that I knew I couldn't get up there by myself Mm -hmm. and there was one guy no there were two guys up on the top who were there purely to lift and drag people up and over oh my gosh so I got as far as I could and then I just held my arms out and they dragged me over the top the whole thing is about Supporting, helping each yeah. other yeah. and encouraging each other. Yeah. So, all of it is fun. What are some of your favourite things to do? I enjoy going to new parts of the world that I haven't been to before. I enjoy talking to and interconnecting with people of different cultures, beliefs, religions. I find it uplifting and exciting and hugely informative to find out how other people view life. What's one of your biggest fears? I suppose illness. Illness which doesn't enable one to to function in the way that you have been lucky enough to function. Mm. Talk about a turning point in your life. To lead up to that turning point, I should explain a couple of things. First of all, when I was quite young, I was trained in speech and drama. I had done a little bit of acting, for which I very much enjoyed acting. I was also, as you know, trained as a a teacher in the UK and also taught in South Africa as well. So if you think about those two strings, the acting side from a long ago and the ability to teach, train, a turning point came after I had given up my job with an ecological consultancy in the UK. I'd been working as an ecologist I was a principal, I had a team of people. I decided that there were things that I wanted to do primarily deliver more training, to start to deliver training myself, but also to undertake um, projects that were not necessarily in the UK. And the only way I could do it was if I left this company and I set up on my own. I had gone to a conference in the UK. It was a BAT conference, in actual fact, and I'd met a young man. And we had spent one evening drinking wine together. Much of this evening, I have to say, to this day, I can't quite remember. (laughs) About six months after that, and this was the turning point, this young man, whose name is Richard Crompton, rang me and said, Do you remember you and I having a discussion? that evening at the bat conference, and I said, kind of vaguely, he said, the discussion we had was that we could see there was a niche which was to train ecological consultants in undertaking bat surveys for environmental impact assessment. He said, such people are struggling to get training and they're struggling to be able to qualify for the licences that they require to do it. He said, you and I discussed that we might be able to offer this. He said, how about it? How about us meeting? And he was on the far west side of Wales, practically on the, right on the, um, on the Irish Sea. And I was more of in the middle of the country. So we decided to choose a point which was halfway between. And we met. And we more or less fleshed out a business proposal mm-hmm which we then subsequently engaged in Hmm. and undertook. What became apparent to me when we began to develop the training material and deliver it was that my skills as an actor, as well as my ability to teach, came together because the kind of training we were delivering was not the sort of thing where you just stood up and spouted for hours upon end. Right. It required a different kind of approach. And I just felt that suddenly this was a turning point for me. Things that I... Skills that I'd had were coming together to enable me to do this in a way that I felt I could do well. We have now run that business for uh, 10 years this year, and yeah. it's been very successful. What What is something do you wish you could let go of? Uh, I suppose it's, I'm always prepared to do things which are slightly risky. And then you recently had an accident. Yes, I recently broke my arm. Right. And how did that happen? Um, It was last June, the end of June. I have always wanted to ride in the Camargue. And as you know, I've been involved in horses since I was five years old. Um, I've done a lot of riding I've owned horses and I've taught people to ride and um, what I wanted to do was to have the Camargue Guardian experience where you are rounding up the black bulls of the Camargue These, these animals are bred to fight but not as in the Spanish sense where they are killed they go into an arena and young men literally jump around and over them and kind of bait them Wow, but they're not. They're not. Sometimes the young men get killed. Mm. Um, And these animals are bred in an area of of southern France called the Camargue, which is an area of the distributaries of the River Rhone. Oh, wow! It's a large delta area Mm. where Mm. rice is grown. And I had three half days of riding, and on the final day, I was actually riding not a Camargue horse, but an Andalusian gelding and I'd been riding him for three days and it was fine and on the last day we were rounding up we we, we brought in from the the fields 60 of these animals brought them into a large compound I say we there was uh, four guardian and four I think four other riders with me and we came from various directions and brought them all into the uh, compound and then we split them off in groups of five to put them through a press where we could um, worm them and it was the last group of five it was the end of the session and I'd push the last group of five through and my horse for reasons I don't know reared and the Camargue saddle is such that it's got a very high pommel at the front and if you try to lean into the you into can't. the rear you can't easily so I came off backwards and my husband Jerry had just arrived um literally to to pick me up at the end of the of the period, <laughs> so he was witness to it, and he felt the horse was actually going to come back on top of me oh. but um it um it didn't mm-hmm. um, I landed on the ground I almost certainly landed on my arm my head i had a, a hard hat on and I didn't touch my head at all That's great. um and the humerus cracked just below the head of the humerus on the upper arm on my right arm and funnily enough I had little or no pain and they all thought I hadn't broken my arm whereas I thought I probably had yeah and I was taken to the hospital in Isle. fortunately for me the break didn't move yeah. it stayed in exactly the right position and I'm mm. nearly back to normal again now wow. 12, 12 weeks but I've I've been riding much yeah. more more recently than that so pretty much back to normal and uh, somebody said to me you know if you if you had your time to come back again would you would you have not done that holiday and absolutely this is a good example of me as a character absolutely not mm-hmm. prior to that happening I thought this was one of the most gorgeous things I'd ever done I right. loved it you know If you had the power
1: to solve one problem, (laughs) what would it be?
0: Plastic in the ocean.
1: Why that problem?
0: Well, I'm just currently um, developing um, some talks uh, for, for a cruise lecture. Each talk that I'm preparing, they are talks about wildlife and natural history. The issues relating to the decline in many species... Uh, Much of it revolves around the enormous presence of plastic in our world. If a young person came to you
1: and asked you what's important in living a a good life,
0: what, what advice would you give them? Have ambitions. Work out what those ambitions mean and how you are going to achieve what you want to achieve. Have a A fixture of purpose that you go down that route and you attempt to not just give up easily but overcome the difficulties if that is what you want. Always be considerate of others and the people that you encounter along your route enable them to also achieve their goals and they will in most cases appreciate that and help you Mm. along the route as well. Thanks for joining in this week. And if you
1: like this podcast, please hit the subscribe button on iTunes or Podbean or wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate the podcast by clicking on the stars. And most importantly, if you like it enough to share it with others, ah, even better. Join me next time for someone who used to live in Grayton. This is someone who is connected with the work of two of my past guests. And for now, I'll call him Professor Pachyderm. Any guesses?
0: See you next time.